morning, Parkview Church. It is wonderful to gather together to worship our Lord Jesus. God speaks good, to, good news to us from Romans 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We all have areas in our lives that deceive us into being suspicious that there is condemnation waiting for us at some point in the future. And yet the gospel, the good news of Jesus, speaks a better word. It compels us to worship because it says the Lord Jesus has taken upon himself our condemnation on the cross and has freely given to us his perfect beloved status before the Father. And so that is why we worship this Sunday. We gather to worship because after a week of living in a world filled with condemnation and hearts fearful of condemnation, right now, we get to breathe the fresh oxygen of the gospel this Sunday morning, which says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, the Lord wants to hit the refresh button of your heart, of my heart, to enjoy that reality so that we are filled up with his fullness and then walk into this week secure in his love as witnesses for Christ. And so that's why we worship Jesus this Sunday. He is worthy of worship. Well, my name is Wade. I'm the pastor for college students here at Parkview Church. So if you are a college student, a special welcome to you. And uh, we're so glad that you are here with us. And uh, no matter where you're at in your relationship with God, uh, some of you are still considering if Christianity is true or not. Others of you have been following Jesus for a long time now. Well, we're just glad that you're here at Parkview. Uh, we want to help people take their next step to learn about Jesus. And we think this happens best through the Bible in the context of community. And so if you want to connect with us, you go to parkviewchurch.org slash connect and fill out a digital connect card. And we'd love to follow up with you within this week. Well, Baptism Sundays are coming up here at Parkview Church. And if you would like to be baptized, there's a class on October 4th, October 4th, 10.30 a.m. in the atrium here at Central Campus. So October 4th, 10.30 a.m., atrium, Central Campus is a baptism a class teaching you how to prepare for baptism, what is baptism. Uh, many of us uh, have questions on that, and so that's a great time to clarify some of those things. Uh, the baptisms themselves will then happen in our services October 18th at Central and East Campus, and then October 24th at North Campus. So October 18th, Central East, October 24th at North Campus. If you want more information, go to parkviewchurch.org slash events. Let's move into a time uh, devoted to prayer. We are in a season of renewal here at Parkview Church, and one of the things that is crucial for us to experience renewal is devotion to prayer in the Lord's power. And so uh, as much as possible, let's focus during this time that we're all participating in prayer. You're not just watching me or observing me pray, but we're all participating in prayer during this time. And so at certain points, I will ask that you silently and personally engage in the Lord in response to uh, where we're at in, in the time of prayer. And so as always, let's begin with prayer and adoring our great Lord. Father, we humbly enter your presence with praise this morning. How astonishing that you, the holy king of creation, you know us with an intimate and gentle kindness. We are perfectly and wonderfully made, and your works are wonderful, and so we praise you. Father, you deserve all our best adoration, love, and affection. Jesus, we praise you as our friend and our Lord. Jesus, you are the most important person in the universe. 
There is no one like you, holy and humble, majestic and gentle, wise and powerful. Jesus, we love you because of your gracious welcome of us, despite our great flaws, despite our great weaknesses. Holy Spirit, we praise you for filling us with the fullness of God in Christ. In the midst of our weakness, we have your strength. In the midst of our confusion, we have your wisdom. In the midst of our pain, we have your comfort. We love you, Holy Spirit. And so, O Lord, you are the one true and living God, and we worship you. And so for a few moments, personally, in silence, spend time praising God for who he is. Fathers, we enter your presence. We see how holy and good you are. And then we immediately recognize how sinful and broken we are. So we must confess our sin against you. We have failed your good design for us. The desire of our hearts are so often broken instead of pure. The thoughts of our minds are so often selfish instead of compassionate. And the speech of our lips is so often critical instead of encouraging. So please forgive us for the way we have sinned against you in thought, word, and desire. And so personally in silence, spend a few moments now confessing specific sins to the Lord, seeking his forgiveness. Father, as we confess our sins, we remember your word, which promises us that you are faithful and just to forgive all of our sin. And this is only possible through the death and resurrection of your son on our behalf. And so thank you, Jesus, for being the friend of sinners, your heart of compassion being drawn out towards us in our places of greatest burden, regret, weakness, and sin. Jesus, there is no one like you who treats us with such grace in the midst of such failure. Thank you for your full forgiveness and fellowship with you forever. And so, Father, now we turn to a time of asking and seeking your face for specific requests. Since you love us and you're gracious toward us, we ask for your provision for the following needs. For those of us, Lord, who need healing, please come with your strength. Lord, give justice for those experiencing harm or oppression. Father, please deepen our love and care for one another as a church as we seek to encourage each other to love Christ. Teach us to be a church that speaks openly and honestly and consistently the truth of Jesus in love so that we might grow in maturity as a church, whether at home, in our apartments, at work, or in church. Help us be a people speaking about Christ all the time. And so in silence, personally, spend a few moments now asking the Lord for any specific needs that you have. Finally, Lord, we pray for the preaching of your word. We pray first that Jesus is exalted among the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. We specifically ask that you bless the ministry of our global workers at this time. Open doors for the gospel to powerfully draw people to faith in Jesus. 
And we ask for your blessing here at Parkview Church. May pastors Fern and Casey determine to preach Christ crucified this Sunday. Magnify the awesomeness of Jesus through the preaching here at Parkview Church. May you strengthen them and all of their weakness to depend fully on the power of the Spirit so that our faith, as we listen intently to your word, that it does not rest in human wisdom, but in the very power of God. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we ask these things through Christ your Son, for your glory, for our good. Amen. Now let's enjoy the Lord through singing. Parkview, hear the Lord. Invite us to worship him through Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen. Let us sing to the Lord. Please stand.
like our God, who is like our God. Praise the Lord, all the earth, all the earth. Bless His name, only one name, now and always. Praise the Lord, all the earth, all the earth. Bless His name, only one name, now and always. Bless His name, only one name, now and always. Father, Creator, you mold our hearts together. There's no one higher than you. Redeemer, Defender, our great and mighty Savior. There's no one higher than you. You are always with us. Gracious to forgive us by your power, we've been set free. And Lord, we stand amazed in your presence, astounded by your mercy and love. Our hands are lifted high in surrender. Your grace for me is always enough, and there is no one higher than our God. There is no one higher than you. Majestic in wonder, you reign with love forever. There's no one higher than you. Your beauty, your splendor, your glory knows no measure. There's no one higher than you. You are always with us, gracious to forgive us. Grace for me. 
each other what the Lord has done for us. I needed rescue, my sin was heavy, the chains break at the weight of your glory. I 
needed shelter, I was an orphan, but you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing, now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future, my eyes are open, cause when morning, Parfum. My name is Doug Fern. I am the campus pastor over at East Campus, and it's a joy to be able to um, worship with you this morning, whether it's here physically or online. We're so glad that you are here and that you are worshiping with us. Um, as you may or may not know, as a church, we have kind of dedicated this year, called this year that we are in right now for us as a church, a year of renewal. And one of the key aspects is we seek to see God's spirit renew us as a people. One of the, the key habits that we want to see developed within us as a church is that we are committed to discerning God's purposes for us in his word. So we're giving ourselves this year in a way that is um, uh, with a real specific focus to looking at God's word and seeing what it is that he has called us to as his people. To help us do that, we are studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I sure hope that you do. I would invite you to open them up or pull out your phone, whatever is a, uh, the, the, the handiest copy of God's word that you have around you. Just pull that out and go to 1 Corinthians. Um, specifically this morning, we are looking at chapter four. And so as we look at this church, hopefully you guys have seen, it should bring to us some degree of encouragement this morning, right? Because as we see this church that, that Paul writes, that God instructs through his servant Paul on how they should be, what we, what we see instantly in the very first pages of this book, the very first words of this book is that it is a church that has some serious problems, right? It is a church that has some major flaws. And so God's word comes to them through the servant Paul to instruct them to correct some of the things that have gone sort of off the rails for them, okay? And so this, this first section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 through chapter 4, really is a, is a unit where Paul is addressing specifically the problem of division within the church. So Paul is trying to apply the gospel. He's trying to, to take the cross, place it at the very center of the movement, movement where it should be and say, as people of God, you are people of the cross. And the cross is what gives shape to how you live your lives together as a people. It also gives shape to how you view leaders in the church. And so to bring this sort of section to a close in chapter four, Paul zeroes in on the idea of Christian leadership. 
And basically what he wants to bring to the focus for the church is, is answering for them a question that hopefully all of us are asking to this very day, what does it mean to be a Christian leader? What does it mean to be a Christian leader? Not just for myself so I know how to, how to act as a Christian leader, but also as I, as I look at Christian leaders around me. What is the picture of a Christian leader in the Bible? Well, that's really what the, the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is all about. And so what I'm going to do is, before I read the, the passage, I also want to just make a quick comment. Um, we're, we, we are, I was assigned the whole chapter, chapter 4, it's really one unit. It's, a, it, it's, it's really designed to be taught um, together, but it's also a highly, there's a lot of technical and difficult things that are happening in this chapter. And so I want to let you know up front, I'm not going to be able to cover exhaustively everything that is mentioned in the chapter. That's why I would direct you to your weekly email. Hopefully you have signed up and you get a weekly email where you receive a, a study guide that Pastor Hoke um, produces every week that complements the message. And so if there's some things that you'd like to know some further study on and maybe even use it in your community group and, and discuss it a little bit, you'll find a study guide in that weekly email. Okay, so um, that will kind of complement what's being taught here this morning. So as we look at God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I would invite you to stand up. And we do this to bring um, reverence and to show reverence to God's word. And I'm going to read it for us in its entirety. And then I'll pray for our time together. Okay, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart." Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. For none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would not you, would, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus 
through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word right now. Lord, as your people, we believe this word to be absolutely true and to be eternal. And our, our request right now in, the, in the, the moments ahead of us is simply that you would take this word that you would write it on our hearts, Lord, and that you would use it to conform us into the image of your son. Lord, I pray that you'd use me to that end. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, a number of years ago, many of you may know an uh, individual who was on staff here at Parkview and who was really uh, assigned at the very beginning of 24-7 as the leader of 24-7. His name is Jesse Bradley. If you're new here and you don't know him, that's fine. Um, for me, I, I kind of came into ministry by being a part of 24-7. And so, so Jesse Bradley, for me, was, was a spiritual mentor um, in really my most formative years of my um, adulthood. Um, and I looked up to Jesse in a lot of, lot of different ways. Well, right, right before he moved on from Parkview, it was right around the same time that I came on staff here at Parkview, um, Jesse was clearing out his office, and he came across a tape, a cassette tape. If you don't know, kids, just ask your folks, okay? A cassette tape. He gave it to me, and it, it, it stayed in my desk for a number of months, and I did not listen to it. I did not have the means to listen to it. I didn't have a tape player, or whatever you call them. I don't know. I, didn't, I couldn't find one. Well, shortly after, you know, a couple of months had passed, my, my, my mom, I went home, found one at my parents' house, and asked if I could borrow it so I could listen to this tape. And, and I put the tape in, and I listened to it. And the tape was a, was a message. It was a sermon that was preached by a man named Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson, if you're familiar with his, is a, a, a man who has a phenomenal ministry um, that he has led for a number of years that is developed in this nation but really spans the globe. He's a unique man. If you ever have the chance to listen to him speak, he's a unique individual and he's definitely a unique leader. But he, has a, he also has a unique story. See, in 1960, Bill Wilson was but three years old and he was abandoned on a street corner by his mother um, at, a, at a street corner in St. Petersburg, Florida. The, the mom left him there and she never returned to him. After three days had passed, a local mechanic and a committed Christian, this, a man was walking down the street and discovered this, this boy sitting there. Sorry, it wasn't three, he was 12. I apologize, 12 years old, not three. This man saw Bill Wilson, 12-year-old Bill Wilson, standing there waiting for his mom to return. This man took him, he fed him, and eventually would sign him up for, to spend a week at a Christian summer camp. And it was at that camp that Bill committed his life to the Lord. He heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time and, and threw his life at the feet of the cross and became a devoted follower of Jesus. Bill would go on to graduate high school and eventually college. Shortly after graduation, through his local church, Wilson would start up a bus ministry. 
And this bus ministry would, would start out in St. Petersburg and it would send out a fleet of buses and every Sunday they would pick up thousands of kids around the city and they would bring them to different churches where they would have Sunday school. Well, this ministry began to grow and multiply and it was eventually replicated throughout the nation. Many of you are familiar with similar bus ministries. In 1980, Bill moved to Brooklyn, New York and started there what is now called the Metro World Ministries, an organization that reaches some 100,000 children every single Sunday. Over the years, as he served in this capacity, Bill Wilson was shot, stabbed, beaten, hospitalized multiple times. He, he travels around the globe now casting vision and raising support for this very important ministry. But the thing that stuck out to me was not just this man's sort of just wild story and his, his success in ministry, but what stuck out to me was what I discovered at the very end of the message, what I believe to be true to this very day. I could be wrong. I don't follow his ministry closely. But to, to my understanding, to this day, this leader, a man who has multiplied this ministry across the globe, has seen the gospel permeate different communities that otherwise it may not have and, and come to children who, who quite honestly needed it. A man who was successful in his vision and his leadership. What amazed me the most was what I heard at the end of the message. Is that to this very day, Bill Wilson, every Sunday morning, climbs on a bus and drives into a neighborhood and picks up kids. And the reason he said he does it is because he sees himself in each child who walks on that bus. Now, to me, this, this kind of rattled my world a little bit. Here is this competent, gifted, this man of vision who has a tremendous amount of success, no doubt has a massive amount of employees who serve and work underneath him. And yet every Sunday, he does the most basic job that is required in his ministry. He gets on a bus and drives it across town and brings kids to church. I mean, that really stuck with me. It really stuck me because what it did is it, it reshaped the way I thought of leadership. It made me think differently about what it means to be a Christian leader. Folks, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 should cause every single one of us to do the exact same thing. To rethink true, authentic, genuine Christian leadership and to rethink it in the shadow of the cross. This morning what we discover is while we, while we go through this passage and as we uh, sort of an image of genuine Christian leadership emerges from the text, what we'll discover is that Christian leadership is not Somebody who is a Christian leader, they are not an exception to the way of the cross, but rather they are an embodiment of the way of the cross. They fully embrace the essence of living according to the cross. They're not an exception to it. They fully embody it. What does good leadership look like? This is a question that we should always be asking that we should always be asking. It's a question, especially now in our nation with sort of this election season that we're in. It is a question that is not just being asked by the church, but is being asked by the entire nation. What does good leadership look like? 
As we examine this passage, two things I want to point out real quick is, first of all, this is not an exhaustive list. This passage does not tell us everything that we need to know about the nature and definition of Christian leadership. It is not an exhaustive list. It is a very helpful description. It is not an exhaustive description, though. The second thing we must keep in mind, and some of you may be thinking this right now, um, I'm not a Christian leader, so why do I care what it says about Christian leadership. Some of you may be thinking that right now. You may not see yourself as a leader within the church or a leader in whatever um, place that you work, but, but you're asking yourself, why, what does this have to say about me? Well, it's important for us to, to, to understand this morning is that if we're often tempted to see leadership as an exclusive or sort of an elitist group of people that operate under a unique set of qualifications and virtues, that's not the way the Bible talks about Christian leadership. Rather, the idea of leadership is a focus, a specific focus on the very characteristics and virtues that shape Christian living, period. All right? And so there's not like there's a separate set of qualifications that, that Christians follow. And then for leaders, there's another set. In fact, if you were to go throughout the Bible and look at the different characteristics, the different passages that talk about leadership, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 come to mind right away, you will notice that the, the qualifications of a leader, outside of not being a recent convert and being able to teach, all of the other descriptors, all the other characteristics can be applied to the entire church, right? They, they are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible as being characteristics that define Christians in general, okay? So keep those two things in mind. It's not an exhaustive list. And secondly, these things apply to all of us as followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, these pictures should describe the life that you are trying to live as well, okay? So what I wanna do is I wanna walk through the text and just show you through three different sections, I want to show you three different images, different pictures of what Paul uses, language Paul uses to describe Christian leadership. And the first we see here in verses one through seven, and it's this. Christian leaders, God's word says, are stewards of the gospel. Christian leaders are stewards of the gospel. Look at verse one. You'll be helped if you have your Bible open and, and you can reference it as I read. Verse one, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul has already used this idea of servanthood. Remember, if you remember back to last week when he used this agricultural analogy to describe uh, ministers of the gospel, he, he compared them to servants, like a farmhand working on a farm. This is a different word that Paul uses here, though, but, but it has a very similar meaning. The word here, servant, is a word that would have been used to describe a slave who rose at the very lowest level of a boat, okay? Somebody who is at the bottom of a boat, rowing and rowing and rowing. See, in a world where we are tempted to, to think of leadership as a ladder that one ascends, the Bible's picture couldn't be more different. It is not a ladder you ascend and, and arrive at the very top with hands that are clean. Rather, Christian leadership looks like somebody who is, who is willing and ready to go low to the bottom of the boat, to get hands dirty and to row back and forth. 
He says that they are stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul says that he and, and other ministers should be referred to as servants who are stewards. During this time, it would have been common for a wealthy person to, to trust a servant to manage their property or their wealth. This maybe as you hear this language, your thought, if you're familiar with the Bible, if, if you remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew 25 of the, the parable of the talents, where he says, for it will be a, a man, he, Jesus says, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, to each according to his ability. I don't know if you guys remember the parable or not. He gives a talent. He gives talents to these. This wealthy individual gives talents to these servants. And, and he goes away. And talents would have been equivalent of 20 years of wages. So to one servant, he gives five talents. Another, he gives two and to another one. And then the man, the manager, goes away. The one who has five talents, the story goes, took those and dealt well with them. He traded them and multiplied, saw them increase. So he would eventually get five more talents. The one who had two talents did the exact same thing. Eventually he would acquire an additional two talents. But the man who received just one talent, if you remember, took it and buried it. Did nothing with it. While the, the wealthy man returns and commends those two servants upon evaluating the, what they did with those talents. He commends the two servants because of how they stewarded the money. What they did with it, how they traded with it. They, they were shown in their faithfulness as the, as, the, as the talents grew and the money grew. So when he sees them, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Those servants were faithful with what had been entrusted to them. They stewarded it well. But upon discovering how the third servant managed his money... The owner had a much different reaction. Remember the third servant just dug a hole and walked away, right? Did nothing with it. Well, when the, when the wealthy man discovers that, his, his reaction is quite different. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. You didn't invest my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own plus interest, Instead, he's just buried in a hole, not faithful, did not steward it well. Folks, Christian leaders are compared to servants who have the, been given a tremendous thing that they are called to steward. They have been blessed. They've been blessed with the gospel. And they have an obligation to steward that something that has been entrusted to them. That's something Paul refers to here as the mysteries of God. It's language that he's used already at the end of chapter one and beginning of chapter two. It's this type of language of, that, that Paul is using to talk specifically about the crucified and the risen Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that the leaders are stewards of the mysteries of God, he's, he's referring specifically to the gospel of God. And the thing that he has been given them he expects them to manage and steward is the gospel itself. Remember, all Christians are called to serve the Christ, all to serve Christ. All Christians are entrusted with this secret understanding, the secret wisdom that's been given by the Spirit. And if this is true of all Christians, how much more true is it of those who are leaders 
Christian leaders have been entrusted with the gospel. And therefore, they are expected to steward it wisely and to spread it widely. When you think about faithful stewardship to the gospel as a leader, that's what our stewardship should look like. Stewarding the gospel wisely and spreading it widely. Verse 2, moreover, it's required that the stewards be found faithful. They must prove to be faithful. Of this task, stewarding the secret things of God, leaders must never relent. They must prove faithful in this task and must prove faithful to God and to God alone. Christian leaders are preoccupied not with the applause of men. Paul goes as, tells us as we read further on, not with the applause of men, but with the approval of God alone. So as we do what God has called us to do as recipients of this gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and we, we gauge our faithfulness not on the applause of those around us, but on the approval of God alone what he says in verse three. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Not concerned here with winning a popularity contest. Why is he not concerned with winning a popularity contest? Because, goes on, it is the Lord who judges. Folks, it is so tempting in our day and age to become preoccupied with the approval of those around us and to lose sight of the audience that matters the most. That's God himself. A true servant of God is a steward of God's wealth and is only concerned with pleasing God and not men. This does not mean that leaders don't listen to people, right? That's not at all what it means. It does not mean that leaders are not sensitive to the needs of people. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, good leaders will do that. They will do that because they will spend a great deal of time with the people. That They will know the needs, right? But At the end of the day, a a, a true Christian leader is called to be a steward of God's, the mysteries of God. And we seek the approval of God alone. Second thing we see as we move on in verses 8 through 13 is that Christian leaders are like spectacle to the world. They're like a spectacle to the world. This next section provides us with some of the more difficult verses to understand in really the whole of the letter. As we read them, we recognize immediately that Paul is issuing an indictment on the church at Corinth. And he's doing so through biting irony and sarcasm. You can hear it in his tone, verse 8. Already you have all that you want. The Corinthians' view of themselves is radically askew. They see themselves as already being spiritually filled. Therefore, they have no hunger. They have no need. They have everything that they already need. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. They consider themselves abounding in the riches of this world. They don't speak, they don't seek true spiritual wealth. Nor do they desire to heed Jesus' words to lay up treasures in heaven. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. They see themselves as ruling in this world. And Paul sarcastically declares, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What Paul is accusing them of is surrendering to the pagan world around them. The Corinthian church had acquiesced to the world around them. These people are so arrogant, they're so full of pride, And they are determined to be seen as significant 
And they, they, they judge their significance on how the world judges significance. And we spend weeks talking about how the way of the cross completely redefines what significance is. This determination to be somebody has caused division in the church. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. But Paul also wants them to know, and God wants us to know this morning, that defining significance like the world doesn't just result in division. It is a flat-out rejection of the way of Jesus. It is completely inconsistent with the way of the cross. Listen as he goes on. For I think that God has exhibited us, as a, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The, the picture that he paints here in this chapter would be one that would have been familiar to the, the original audience. They, they would have immediately, as he starts to write here, they start to hear these words, they immediately would have been thinking of sort of a parade that would have maybe seen, they would have seen in their city before. Whenever a victorious general would, would come home from war, he was given a glorious parade through the city. And as he would lead out in front the, as a way of boasting, he would display behind him the captured nobles and generals. And at the very end of the parade came the soldiers who were to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. While the Corinthian Christians were boasting at the front of the parade, Paul compared himself and the other apostles to those who were captured soldiers, who, who brought up the rear, who were sentenced to death at the very end of the parade. See, Paul is telling him, your focus is entirely wrong. You're, you're looking at the front of the parade as that is a picture of what significance is. That is the picture of what victory is. That is the picture of what true, authentic leadership is. And what Paul is saying is, no, you're at the wrong end of the parade. You need to redirect your gaze at the end. You see these individuals back here who are despised, who are going to be thrown to beasts, and everybody else will be cheering and watching as they are torn to parts, that's who we are to be compared to as Christian leaders. That's us. Totally different. Totally different than what they wanted to hear, right? I mean, it's not what I want to hear. I would love the riches. I would love the wealth. I would love the ability to, to raise my head up high and to walk through the streets and have a following behind. Who wouldn't want that? That's what they're after. And Paul says, you're looking at the wrong end of the parade. That's not what Christian leadership is. The apostles have become like a spectacle to the world, but not of their strength and triumph. It's a spectacle that's based on suffering and defeat. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, listen to how he describes himself. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, right? This is the leader of the church. He, he goes on later in the chapter to call himself their father, their spiritual father. And listen to how he describes himself. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst 
We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, I just want to let you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect to be reviled. You should, be expect, you should expect to be reviled. When reviled, when that happens, we bless. When persecuted, how do we respond? We endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Folks, the very characteristics that the Corinthians are avoiding in life, Paul holds up as exemplary. Weakness, hunger, homeless, labor. Their hands are dirty. We are not embraced by the world around us. When we are not embraced by the world around us, we become like scum. And do you know what we say? That's okay. That's all right. As you hear just this description, hopefully your mind thinks to itself, mind, this sounds familiar. This description, the description of how Paul uses to talk about his life sounds similar to the life of Jesus. Think of Isaiah 53. It says, he had no form or majesty, a description of the coming Messiah, of Jesus himself. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The reason Paul can hold himself up as an example is because Paul is modeling his life after the life of Christ. This should not be a surprise that this is what a description of Christian leadership look like, looks like because this is how our leader lived and died in this world. Rejected, despised, alone. So as we navigate this world, as we seek to see, be good stewards of the gospel that God has trusted us with, as we seek to use it to minister to one another and to spread it widely in our community, we will look like Jesus when we do that. This is our leader. He was rejected. In a world where there is all different kinds of ideas of what leadership looks like, if you're here today and you don't, do not follow Jesus, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is one of the things that absolutely sets Christianity apart is that our leader is a man who humbled himself, who gave up heaven and came to earth. Why? Because he loves us. Who was rejected, despised, spit on, hung up on a cross, murdered on our behalf. This is the kind of leader that we give ourselves to as a people. And we would do well to follow in his footsteps he did all of that. Why? Because he was being obedient to God the Father. He was the one, when everybody else was rejecting him, when, when the applause started to quiet down, ultimately he was, he was more concerned with, appe with appeasing the Father than he was with those around him. This is our leader. And this is who we should be if we aspire to Christian leadership, men and women in the church. This is who we should look like. We should look like Jesus. Jesus. 
Finally, in verses 14 to 21, and I'll make this quick for the sake of time, we see the Christian leaders are, we see that they're stewards of the gospel, they're a spectacle to the world, and finally we see in verses 14 to 21 that they are like spiritual parents. They're like spiritual parents. Paul's words to the Corinthians have been sarcastic and they have been pointed. He pauses here in verse 14 to assure them of his deep love for them. And this is one of the things that brings me a lot of assurance, quite honestly, as we study the book of 1 Corinthians. We see that it's a church that has, a, has some significant problems ahead of them. But yet it's also a people who are deeply loved by God. So much so that at the beginning, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he can say, I give thanks for you. Look what he says in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul had been their spiritual father and that he gave them the gospel and helped lead them to Christ. As their father, Paul sees himself as responsible for these people. He sees that some of the problems, he takes the problems in the church as his responsibility. Yes, he has the authority over them, but he also guides them and he loves them. And in verse 16, Paul issues what is really the only command in this whole chapter, and it's something that we should really zero in on. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. This concept of imitating someone in the faith as a means of growing in our faith is, if you've been around the church long, <clears throat> it's, it shouldn't be a new concept. What is unique about it here in this particular verse and in this context is that, remember, Paul is talking about in the context of suffering and rejection from the pagan world around them. He's doing this because he challenges the Corinthians. He's challenging them to, to reject, to stop embracing the value system of the world around you and embrace the value system of the cross. Paul wants them to imitate his unwavering commitment to follow the way of the cross in all of their life. He wants them to follow his values, his priorities, his example. The Corinthians must, must divert their, they must take their attraction to the world and say, you know what, I'm done with that, right? I don't want to be like that. I want to be like my Savior. How do I become like Jesus? Paul is saying, look to me. I'm following Jesus. You, you look at me and you'll see what that looks like. Paul sends them in verse 17, says that he sends them Timothy. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, right? So Paul's following Jesus. Timothy's following Paul's example. So now as they look to Timothy, they're gonna see Paul's example. It's gonna be Jesus's example. He's sending them Timothy not to lay down new teaching, but to remind them of the ways of Christ. And th this is the job of the Christian leader today. The responsibility is not just to teach the things of God, but also to live the way of God so that people can hear God's word and they can follow the way of the cross by looking at the life of a leader to show what the gospel looks like as it's lived out in everyday life. He gives them Timothy so they can figure that out. I mentioned earlier that, that Jesse Bradley served for me as a spiritual mentor. I learned a ton from that man. 
I learned in, in my most formative years of my faith what it meant to follow Jesus. But what's interesting about how I learned, he was a man who, who preached up here on a regu pretty regular basis. He, he preached at 24-7 on a regular basis. But you know, to this day, I can remember nothing he said from behind a pulpit. I can't. I can remember an interesting illustration he had with some lemons one time. It was interesting. I don't remember what the point was. I remember a lot of lemons on stage, all right? But what left the biggest impression on me as I, as I saw him as a spiritual father to me, what left the biggest impression on me wasn't the illustrations, wasn't the applications in his message. It was his life. It was the trips that we took to McDonald's, the, the random car rides to the grocery store. It was the time I spent with him. It was the, 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 the opportunity I had to watch as he interacted with store clerks and people who were, who were not followers of Jesus, who had never heard the gospel. It was watching the steps that he was taking. Yes, his words were incredibly helpful as they formed my understanding of the gospel and of truth and of, of the need for discipleship and evangelism and, and studying my Bible. His words were incredibly important. But what I remember the most about him was the life he lived. And that's what made the biggest impression on me. In order, Paul recognizes for the church at Corinth to grow. He says, what you need is you need some spiritual parenting. You need leaders who will take your spiritual growth as their responsibility, who will teach you in the ways of the Lord and they will show you the way of the cross and how it looks to live it in this world. So in closing, I wanna ask you just three questions. First question is this, and I'm not going to give you any answers. I just want you to write it down and think about it, okay? First question is this. Who do you look like? Who do you look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is painting a picture of what Christian leadership, Christian discipleship, what it looks like. As you consider your life, who do you look like? Does your life sound like Paul's description of his? Hungry, thirsty, persecuted, rejected, scum of the world. Who do you look like? Second question I'd ask you is, who do you look to? Who do you look to? Who are the men or women that God has placed in your life that you are imitating? As you seek to live out the gospel, follow the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, do you have men and women in your life who, are, who you are trying to imitate as they imitate Jesus? And I'll just say right now, if you don't know the answer to that question, if you don't have an answer to that question, as a church, this is our responsibility. This is a place where we seek to provide that, right? And so if you're looking for spiritual guidance, whether it's through community groups, or any of the pastoral staff, or the many wonderful ministries, women's ministries, the men's ministries that are happening here, the, the family ministries that happen here throughout the week, we would love to provide you examples that you can imitate your life after. They're not gonna be perfect, 
all right? But there'll be an example. Who do you look to? And the third question I want to ask you is who is looking to you? Have you taken spiritual responsibility for anybody else? Is there anybody in your life that as you are following Jesus, that you are, you are saying, as Paul said to the church at Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. My hope is here, as we seek to create a, a church of health and of growth, both in depth and in width, as the gospel takes hold of us as a people, that when those questions are asked, let's say a year from now, that, we, that every one of us is writing down names, right? That we have people that we are constantly looking at and there are people who are looking to us Folks, and if that happens, if that happens, if we take spiritual responsibility for our brothers and sisters, my goodness, there is no telling what the Lord might do. Paul tells us here, he says, listen, at the very end, remember when Paul was saying, look at verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. These people who have given themselves to the eloquent speech of leaders, Paul is saying, you can see it if this is authentic, if this is genuine, because it is a message that comes with power. And, and our hope is that this church would unleash the power of God in this community for the good of our church and for the good of the world around us. That we would be the individuals who influence the world, not the other way around. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for, um, for your word this morning as we consider just the role of Christian leadership in the life of the church. Lord, I pray that um, it is something as a church that we would take very seriously. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is constantly discerning your purposes for us as your people and that we're willing to conform ourselves so that we would fit your idea of significance, your idea of leadership, your idea of true life, not the world around us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you just even thinking this morning of those who, who may have written down, had struggled to write down answers. Um, maybe there's, there's nobody in their life that as they look for a spiritual parent, they find, they see nothing, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage and the strength um, to make that need known. And that as the church, it would be our joy to respond to that, Father. Lord, I just think of a, just the idea of seeing uh, just transformation happen here in our church um, because we take each other's spiritual growth um, very, very seriously, Father. So thank you for your word this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
you this morning worshiping Jesus and learning from his word. The way of leadership is the way through the cross. It's wonderful to be together. A quick word uh, before our benediction is just a note on giving. Uh, Because the Lord has generously generously provided for us financially, we sacrificially give back to him and to the advancement of his gospel. And so three ways to give online at parkviewchurch.org slash give. You can mail it in to Central Campus or you can drop it off Uh, in the offering receptacles there in the back of the room. Well, now for the benediction, a good word of blessing from God to us from Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the joy of Jesus to be his witnesses.